this episode, Dr. Cashy focuses on genetics and overeating. Specifically, we discuss the topic of the neurology of eating rather than the genetics of fatness, because lots of people like to connect genetics and fatness together. Uh, sometimes we find it easy to ignore the rational reasons for eating and self-destructive overeating, therefore. So continue to listen to understand the role that genetics plays. And in this case, we'll use babies as our example to see what we can learn from them. Super interesting. Roll the intro. Hello, and welcome to <sighs> Coffee with Cashy. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Cashy. Today's lesson is a bit strange and potentially triggering, if that's okay, hopefully. This is the start of maybe a two to four lesson series, depending on your feedback, on taking a practical, practical perspective uh, into genetics and fatness and overeating and, and other triggering things like that in the context of genetics. It's mostly silly, this lesson anyway, and talks about babies a lot. It's all in a bit of fun. It's all in a bit of, a biddle, a bit of fun. This lesson specifically takes a cursory look at whether you can be a born overeater, okay? And takes a stab at that question by taking a look at the neurology of eating taking a look at the neurology of eating rather than the genetics of fatness, just to kind of set the stage here to get the story rolling. Uh, and, and honestly, when it comes to the genetics and fatness and stuff, lots of experience here uh, formally and, and clinically and educationally and all that stuff, but also in the context of interacting with like journalists, <laughs> okay, because that happens quite frequently. Uh, and this ends up coming around when journalists want it to mean something that is convenient for them. Good Talking to a good journalist is like talking to a good lawyer. It's scary. Uh, they'll pull anything out of you with <laughs> uh, their skilled enough. Anyway, anyway, they're just looking to get material to get their glorified blog post somewhere. How else are they going to rile up to, to get you to click and get their advertising dollars? Uh, Grandpa Cashy curmudgeon out of the way. All right, that reminds me. Throw down a hashtag DNA if you're interested in follow-up lessons discussing the practical implications of genetic propensities for things like fatness and overeating eating and, and associated metabolic derangements. So here's what you're learning. Here's what you're learning. You're learning one, where do babies come from? Hopefully you know how they're made already. Uh, what we do know though is that babies need food, but does that mean babies eat? Hmm? And what people think is eating at the early stage of life is actually, well, not eating. Turns out babies are heavy drinkers. You gotta watch out. They fall asleep at the wheel. Hmm? And since it's uh, obvious, I think, that babies are too fat, they are too short, they are too dumb and too fat and too slow and too weak to play ping pong and other sports. What does Dr. Cashy really mean by all of this stuff about Dr. Cashy, like about babies sucking at sports, right? Oh yeah, they also have terrible cardiorespiratory capacity, the worst endurance ever. They're super emotional, hog the ball. Man, babies suck at sports. Good grief, all right? Here's a little bit of background. Taking things too extreme, either by blowing them out of proportion or by shrinking them to nothing for the sake of humor are some of the best teaching tools out there. 
and they're fun to do, obviously. Fair warning though, touching material in terms of sacrificing technically correct language for the sake of humor. <laughs> I, I was recently interviewed for a book on the topic of human-environment interaction, recently over the course of the last year or so, many times, and just had another interview recently. And there are supposedly many so-called cashyisms distributed throughout the text because over 20 hours worth of interviewing has happened. And there was a follow-up discussion with the author just yesterday regarding, for the sake of brevity, genetics and fatness. Specifically, the application and practicality of genome-wide association studies, which is a, a, a term you'll, just the term, whatever. That's as far as you'll ever go, need to go. The rest is egghead mumbo-jumbo. You can trust me there. Takes one to know one, <laughs> okay? Given Dr. Cashy's background, there was a lot of technical stuff, polymorphisms and translocations and signal transductions and other speculative borderline absurdities that perfectly otherwise perfectly help healthy people assigned to their decisions in fits of genuine frustration about their food eating and body weight, and therefore the question still remains. Since there exist many rational eatings for re for since there exist many rational reasons for eating well and rational ways of doing it, why do we find it so easy then to ignore them? Why do we favor even at times enjoy self-destructive overeating and do it on purpose? Is it the genetic boogeyman? Maybe. Maybe, okay? Many people argue about the genetic component to fatness and overeating, and that's where all of this was started. It probably starts, first of all, because food, quite obviously, or nutrients, to be more specific, are a biological requirement. To that end, there is a genetic endowment for short-range hedonistic behaviors. Here's the rub, though. If humans were born knowing how to eat, then humans would also be born with the means to procure food and eat it, essentially. Things like claws, teeth, locomotion, proprioceptive acuity, a fully functional GI tract, and a halfway decent immune system, of which babies have none, okay? Instead, the human puppy is useless, entirely dependent, gelatinous enzyme sack with an empty hard drive the size of the Roman Empire, with the same level of demandingness it would seem. So, the amount of stuff they can do is pretty much zero but the amount of stuff that they can potentially do is virtually unlimited, and that is the point, okay? Herein lies the difference between human eating and animalistic feeding. Mm. Eating, however, is a learned behavior that is mastered over multiple years. Even if as a big dumb baby, you start learning via methods like, or via ways like operant conditioning, it's far different than born knowing. Even though you start learning immediately, that's way different than born knowing how to do it. That is, when something, when something get, tastes good, right, it gets forced into your mouth, like a nipple gets stuck in there with a few microliters of sugary galactopoietic secreted goodness at the tip of the nipple, then it causes, like, be, and that gets there because of reflexive ejection and all sorts of other fun neurological, hormonal, biological things. It does trigger, trigger a neural response of swallowing, or what is effectively swallowing, once the mouth proprioception dictates it dictates, beep, beep, boop, hey, yo, brain, this is the brain here, the mouth is full, empty your mouth, Psh, right, Psh. to that end, you are born knowing how to swallow, kind of, part of the way there, okay, then, if you know that this thing is in your face and it tastes good, it feels good, well, you want to keep your face next to that stuff, because, you know, learning, <laughs> then, you want, it, you want it to keep getting into your face a lot of times, all the time, because it feels good to do it. So, duh. So you keep your face next to the sweet stuff until the cholecystokinin and other gastropeptidic feedback tells the brain, beep, boop, boop, beep, shh, yo, brain, 
This is, this is the belly. Yo, belly, this is brain. The sweet stuff tastes less sweet now. Whatever, get me away from this thing. Oh yeah, the vagus nerve also lost its tone. Time to go sleepy sleepy. Beep, 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 beep. Pew. Real physiology, by the way. And before anybody starts talking about suckling behaviors and all that other stuff, that's actually drinking. Thank you. That is drinking. <laughs> now, if you want to get technical, it's nutritive suckling, I think. Pediatric clinicals happened a while ago. Uh, that is because there is an ingrained behavior of puckering lips that they measured in, in the old utero, okay? Therefore, this is closer to drinking with puckered lips. A far cry from eating. <laughs> Presumably, this is so the infant can create a vacuum and latch onto the nipple, which means that when the milk is ejected, it gets trapped into the mouth. And then the reflexive swallowing response occurs when the fluid accumulation exceeds the supposed oral proprioceptive threshold. Right? The beep, 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 yo, brain, this is full. Then brain's like, yo, you should get rid of that. Beep, 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 pew. That's what happens. Mouth's full of too much stuff, so you got to get rid of the stuff, okay? This is about as far as you get in terms of eating. Interestingly, though, suckling is a pretty complicated process biomechanically. I mean, compared to eating, it's child's play. Uh -huh. But overall, it's a complicated process. The vacuum must be maintained. You got to create a vacuum, number one. Then you got to maintain the vacuum while the mouth is filling with fluid. And then somehow manage the swallowing process while maintaining the vacuum. And then the infant also must maintain oxygen levels while staying latched, I think is the term. Okay? So it's a suck-swallow breathing loop while somehow maintaining a measurable vacuum with a little help from hydrogen bonding to produce surface tension at the fissures. Yeah. All right. There are two salient reasons why this process is called eating or why people call it eating. One, because the, the baby is, even though it's drinking, there are calories involved. Okay. There's nutrients and things like that. People, that's how the one relation is made. And two, there's the anthropomorphization of the infant. In other words, babies seem more human if they are eating rather than just being dumb, useless babies. All right. Bear with me here. Do you eat milk as a baby? Yes, you do. Do you eat milk as an adult? No, you do not. <laughs> this lackadaisical and overly permissive use of language causes a lot of problems. That's for another cup of joe, though, perhaps in future lessons. It's many, many months into the human life before the baby even has the tools required to kind of sort of flap its gums on foods that either one, instantly dissolve into liquid anyway, so it gives the in impression it's solid food, but it's really just instantaneous phase transition into liquid <laughs> solution or mixture rather. Okay, once the saliva gets involved. And then a lot of the digestion ends up happening in the mouth because of amylase and things like that. Okay, and then two, there's an already homogeneous liquid or gelatinized uh, mixture food paste, essentially, right? Although things like cereal appear solid, like I said, they, once they hit any kind of liquid, they most instantaneously dissolve, making them liquid. So therefore, we are back to drinking, but with extra viscosity, okay? You know what people call baby food, right? That paste. Why it's called baby food? Because even though the viscosity is higher than a normal drink, the eating part, ironically, is still optional. <laughs> the point is, eating is an extremely complicated process that takes multiple years to learn and even multiple years longer to master. And if you're anything like Dr. Kashi, he has a very hard time eating. This is why a vast majority of the time he only wears black shirts because <clears throat> he spills everything and misses his face because eating is a complicated biomechanical process. <gasps> Boiled down, if you were born to overeat, then that would mean you were born to eat. Alas, you were born to drink. Kinda, with puckered lips.
and then you learn to eat much later. It takes years to learn to do it well enough to feed yourself properly, and up into the foray of adolescence, really, to master it. And even then, mastery is a dubiosity. <laughs> However, since that drink contains calories, people end up calling it eating until you eat solid foods. Then drinks with calories go from being food to being drinks again, because logic. Okay. It does, however, help to anthropomorphize the devilishly cute humanoid blobules you all called babies, though. It makes the baby more of a person rather than a humanoid blobular parasite by saying, oh, look, she's eating, how beautiful, right? This helps establish familial bonding, nurturing interactions, uh, etc. Okay, this is good. That's the point. The point is, again, though, if you were born to eat, then you would have the neurological foundations to play sports. Yes, eating is that complicated. Your eyes and hands interact with the environment and you move external objects from one place to the other. You have to know where your body is in space. You got to control your, like there's lots of stuff involved with eating, okay? And it is that complicated. You'd be able to play sports, but alas, you are just a big dumb baby. <laughs> you want proof? You want proof? Throw a ping pong ball at a baby. You know what happens? Nothing. The ping pong ball bounces and it hits the baby in the head and then bounces away. Why? Because babies suck at sports. Babies suck at sports. So here's what you learn. Babies are born. Hopefully they, you know how they are made already and babies need nutrients, okay? But does that mean babies can eat? No. Babies can drink, kind of, with puckered lips. And that it's clear they have some sort of neurological response based on their mouth proprioception, okay? What people think is eating at the early stages of life is actually, well, not eating. Again, it's drinking. And the somewhat arbitrary usage of the word definitely contributes to the confusing conversations regarding genetics and things like born to be fat, born to be an overeater, born to be X, Y, or Z. Causes a lot of confusion. And that, that contribution to the conversation means that if you look at the words how they are used... Really, if a baby was born to eat, then it would also be born with the neurological foundations to play ping pong. It's essentially the same skill set. If you can eat on your own, then you can play ping pong. You'll suck, probably suck a lot, but you can still play it. <laughs> Since it's obvious babies are too short and too fat and too dumb and too weak to play ping pong, what does Dr. Cashy really mean? All right, oh yeah, they also have terrible cardiorespiratory capacity. Their endurance is horrible. They hog the ball. They're highly emotional and they always have to be the star. Babies suck at sports, stay away, okay? It does mean that although babies need nutrients, they are taught to eat, they learn to eat, and that means they learn and are taught to, even if they teach themselves to overeat. Do genetics play a role in that? Sure, why not? Does it change anything in terms of what to do if it starts to happen? Well, that would be the topic of the next series, right? So throw down a hashtag DNA if you're interested in follow-up lessons discussing the practical implications of the genetic propensities for fatness and overeating and associated cardiometabolic derangement stuff. Thanks for learning in this silly but fascinating lesson. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Kashi? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you, and see you next week. Dr. Kashi is out! <laughs>